Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Jason Brown was one of the best centers in the NFL. At one point, he had a five-year, $37 million contract with the St. Louis Rams. And at one point, he decided it was all meaningless and just walked away from football. My agent, you know, he told me, he said, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. And I looked right back at him. I said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. So what could possibly trump the NFL? You wouldn't believe. Jason Brown quit football to be a plain old farmer. Even though he never farmed a day in his life. How did you learn even to do what you're doing? Get on the internet. You watch YouTube videos. So you learned how to farm from YouTube? Yeah. You can still plant your crops. Thanks to YouTube and some good advice from other farmers here in Lewisburg, North Carolina. This week, Jason finished harvesting his first five-acre plot of sweet potatoes. When you see them pop up out of the ground, man, it's the most beautiful thing that you could ever see. He says he has never felt more successful. Not in man's standards, but in God's eyes. But God cares about the NFL. I see people praying to him on the field all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of people praying out there. But um, when, when I think about a life of, of greatness, I think about a life of, of service. Which leads us here. Which leads us here, yes. See, his plan for this farm, which he calls First Fruits Farm, is to donate the first fruits of every harvest to food pantries. Today, it's all five acres, 100,000 pounds of sweet potatoes. It's unusual for a grower to grow a crop just to give away. Rebecca Page organizes food collection for the needy. And that's what Jason has done. And he's planning to do more next year. Jason has a thousand acres here, which could go a long way toward eliminating hunger in this neck of North Carolina. Love is the most wonderful currency that you can give anyone. You sure you played in the NFL? <laughs> Yes, because I feel like cuddling you right now. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> so this is the last week of our training wheels series. Using the metaphor of a bike, we've been talking about the importance of growing past the training wheels. You know what? If that's where you're at, if you're just starting out in the Christian life, then training wheels are perfect for you. But at some point, you want to get on the bike, you want to race, you want to ride in the mountains, and you want to do it free of the training wheels. And so we've been looking at the book of, uh, the book of Hebrews and the book of James, and we have been trying to figure out what it looks like to grow up in our faith. And so we're wrapping up the series today, and we're talking about one of the great potholes that prevent many people from growing to full maturity in the Christian faith, money. So you could think about today as investing in a great bike. 
Because if you want to grow up in faith, then we need to get a handle on our relationship to money. Now, I know people get weird talking about money in church, and I certainly understand why. You just watch the news and hear about all those stories and the types of abuse that are out there. And so I understand people get, get really weird about talking about it. I mean, you heard this just that what happened recently, right? It was the owner of Chick-fil-A. He contacted the Vatican. He said that uh, he wanted to donate a million dollars a year. So he called the Pope, and the Pope's like, that sounds great. We could help a lot of people with a million dollars a year. And he's like, yeah, but the, the owner's like, there's just one thing. I need you to change the Lord's Prayer from give us this day our daily bread to give us this day our daily chicken. The Pope's like, you can't be changing the Lord's Prayer. I mean, that's like a big deal. Like, it's the Lord's Prayer. And the owner of Chick-fil-A is like, yeah, but it'd be really, really good for business. It would help more money flow into us and to you. And he's like, how about, how about $10 million a year? And the Pope's like, we can't possibly be doing this. You know what it would take? I mean, you have to call all of the cardinals together. It would be a huge meeting. It would be a big to-do. And he's like, you know, I just, I can't do it. And uh, the, the owner of Chick-fil-A, he's persistent and he's got a great business model. He's like, you know what, listen, how about for $100 million a year? For $100 million a year, would you, would you make the change? And he's like, you know, I, the Pope's like, listen, I don't know. Let, let me think about it. So he goes back to the Vatican. He actually calls a meeting of all of the cardinals and the bishops are hearing about it and all that. And he's doing the big old report. And he's like, listen, we got some really good news, some not so good news. And he's like, so the, the thing is, the owner of Chick-fil-A, he's offering to give us $100 million a year. And he's all excited. Everyone's excited. They're like, that's fantastic. That's incredible. That's going to do so much good. There's so many people we can help with all of that money. It would be such a great thing. And he's like, yeah, the problem is he, he wants us to change the Lord's Prayer from give us this day our daily bread to give us this day our daily chicken. And there's a murmur throughout the crowd. And he's like, I know. That's the bad news. They're like, I know. We're going to lose the Wonder Bread account. <laughs> True story. So I, so I know people get weird talking about money in church. But I just want to let you know, out, just be straightforward, upfront with everybody. Listen, Beacon isn't hurting financially. And so don't think about today as a day where I'm trying to like, you know, guilt you guys into giving more money or anything like that. That's not what today is about. You know, we're not hurting financially as a church. In fact, we already received the offering, which you know normally happens at the end of the service. But we've already received the offering. The baskets have already been passed. So there's not that weird, awkward moment at the end where you're like, oh, he's been talking about money. I got to kick in a little extra. We don't want it to be about that. What we're hoping today is, is an honest evaluation for each and every one of us regarding our relationship to money. That's what we're hoping we can do today. Free of any sort of the guilt or browbeating or anything like that, we're trying to evaluate our relationship with money. Because we have more money than most anyone in the world ever. I know that's hard for many of us to believe, but it is true. Sociologist Michael Emerson, he calls American Christians the most affluent group of Christians in 2,000 years of church history. Yet, 20% of Christians and 28% of Catholics, making up the bulk of Christendom, never give anything at all. And as a percentage of income, Christians give a paltry 3% or less of their income to help other people. Studies have regularly indicated that the more money that people make, the lower the percentage of their income they give away. You imagine that? 
The more you make, the less percent that we give away. This has caused many, like author Ronald Sider in a great book, uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. He said, by any objective criterion, the 5% of the world's people who live in the U.S. are an incredibly rich aristocracy, living in the midst of impoverished masses. Surely one of the most astounding things, therefore, about this affluent minority is that we honestly think we barely have enough to survive in modest comfort. So what is going on with American Christianity? This morning I want us to do a little audit. A little audit. There are going to be three questions from the book of James that we're going to ask ourselves about our relationship with money that will help determine how we are maturing in the Christian faith. So open, if you would, in a Bible to James chapter 2, verse 14. We'll be starting in James chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to get at the very first of these questions. What does your use of money reveal about your faith? What does your use of money reveal about your faith? James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? If you see needs, he's telling us, and you refuse to help, what does this say about your faith? I mean, this is, a, this is a telling indicator. He actually goes on to say, it doesn't matter what you believe. Your theology could be spot on. You could have nailed it. You could believe all of the right things about God. So you might tell yourself, I've got great faith. I believe all that the Bible says. And James here is saying, yeah, but if you don't do anything with it, is there really any faith there at all? If it doesn't result in changes to the way you use your money to help people, then something is wrong. You've got to put your money where your mouth is. So have you? So have you? Because that's what Jason Brown, the football player, did, for sure. Giving up a massive lucrative deal because he felt God's call on his life. You can actually do this as a spiritual exercise. You know, sometimes we think of like prayer and Bible reading and stuff like that as the only spiritual exercises, but there's many spiritual exercises that can help us grow. And you could actually do this. You could actually evaluate your spending to see how it lines up with the teaching of Jesus. You know what the Bible says already. Most of you are already familiar with the kinds of things that Jesus says in the scriptures. We know that God is, is passionate about helping the poor. We know that the Bible talks about spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his life, death, burial, and resurrection to the world. We know that's a high value. It's the mission of the church. We know that Jesus talks about being sacrificial in our generosity. So you already know a whole bunch of things the Bible says. Now take those things and line them up with your spending. Just do a little evaluation. See how your spending lines up with the values of of Christ. And then ask yourself, am I more bark than bite? Are you actually doing Christianity with your money? Question number two, what is at the center of your life? Is it God or 
money. Now flip over to James chapter 4, verse 13. James hits on this theme throughout his book. James chapter 4, verse 13. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James here is talking to the merchant class in the ancient world. This is a group of people that really did hustle to make a living. They worked long, hard hours, and they made some decent money, and they were able to live comfortably. They weren't the super wealthy, but they also weren't the poverty class. They weren't slaves and they weren't farm hands. This was the merchant class. This, this group really did work hard. They're not the one percenters. None of these folks would have been born with a silver spoon. They earned everything they had. And because of that, they could really say that the money was theirs. And that, of course, is how most of us experience life. The vast majority of us here... Most of us work really, really hard for our money. And that's a great thing. The Bible talks about it in glowing terms to work hard for our money. But there is a downside that can happen. I've seen it at least in my own life, and I've heard many others talk about it. When we work really hard, we make all of this money, we start to get this sense that it's my money. I mean, actually, who worked for it. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> Who put in all those hours? That was me. So it's my money. Now, I grew up uh, in a parish where if you just dropped like 20 bucks in the plate, then you felt like you were rocking and rolling. Like that was kind of the culture. You just, you know, the plate would go by, you drop 20 bucks, and you'd be like, I did my thing. Like, you know, I'm sort of free for the week, and, you know, I was generous. And then, you, you become a follower of Christ and you start to read the Bible and you start to learn a little bit more about the, what the Bible says and you realize this isn't really generosity. You know, that's barely, that's barely a blip in, based on, you know, my own socioeconomic thing and you start to realize the Bible says stuff a whole lot more. In fact, a biblically informed Christian would come alongside and say, no, actually the Bible talks more like a 10%, not, not 20 bucks, but like 10%. Like it's a, it's a big deal. They talk about the tithe. And so a biblically informed Christian would be like, well, you know, that's, that's significant. But now you can imagine what happens to many of us there. We go, well, the good news is I give God his, his cut, his 10%, and I still have my 90% to do with whatever I want. Because now it's really mine. I gave God his, I took mine. And that works really well for us for many years until eventually, like I came to a place in my life where I realized it's not really what the Bible says. <laughs> The Bible says, yes, you start off, you start to learn how to give, and you start to be generous, and the tithe can help you in that. But actually, God can ask for all of it. It's all his. And I'm a steward of it. He might have told me how to steward 10% specifically, but he still has authority over the other 90%. This is actually what it means to start to put God at the center of your existence rather than money. And this can get very challenging for us. Because we have to start to ask ourselves, what rests at the center of your life? 
Is it mostly temporal stuff? Is it the kinds of things that will die when this world dies? You start to ask, well, what am I going to do next week? Where am I going to go next month? What am I going to do in a year from now? Where will I live? What will I drive? How will I entertain myself? How am I going to pay for all of this? How am I going to get the kids through college? What am I going to do about my retirement? You see, you start to think in all of these ways. It's all about the temporal world. And if you wanted to do a little bit of an exercise, you could imagine for a moment that you have lost everything. This is a great Thanksgiving weekend message. Imagine you've lost everything, all your money, all your possessions. There is no bailout coming. There's no insurance claim that's going to make it all right. Your earning potential has been seriously diminished for the rest of your life, and your retirement has gone up in flames. Poof. All gone. To the degree to which you could actually put yourself in that emotional position, how does it make you feel? For me, it feels like sheer terror. Panic. Like, what would, it, what, would it, what would you mean? How, like, for the rest of my life, it would be hard to make ends meet? What would I do for my family? How would I provide for them? What would I do for my kids? How could I actually put food on the table? What does it mean for a roof over my head? What if I end up on the street? And you suddenly you could start to imagine what life would be like. And in those moments, you start to get a sense of how much of our identity is wrapped up in the pursuit of money or in the management of money or in our desire for money, or at least for the safety that money provides. See, when making money becomes more important than devotion to God, we have failed the audit. Third question, do you spend your money in self-indulgent ways? James chapter 5, verse 1. Now he's going to really turn the screws here on us. James chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. We think this is so far from our experience, and yet I just read the New York Times how they said that the, the very migrant workers who are collecting our, our uh, groceries, they're, they're, they're harvesting our groceries in, in the valley in California, they're all malnourished. The very workers themselves who are collecting our food don't get enough. And so you're reading this, you're like, this is still happening today in our country. And James is, of course, here speaking to all of us, but he's especially talking to the top earners, the landowners, the business owners. When you're able to purchase vacation homes and extra cars and boats and expensive hobbies, he's talking to those of us who have the ability to spend lots of discretionary income on ourselves. And he tells them that wealth isn't going to make it to the next world. It's not. It's nothing that you can take with you. So why are you piling up money or spending it on things that are not going to last in the next life? 
the very hoarding of those resources will be the testimony against you. They'll be able to look at your life and say, the very stuff that you should have been doing good with, you collected and you hoarded to yourself, and it will stand in judgment over you. James here is picking up a warning that is found throughout the Bible, a warning about living in luxury while others are living in poverty. Bellamia is a Maltese terrier. I just read about this last week. She enjoys the finer things in life. She's a pampered dog. She eats filet mignon. She has her own room with a twin bed just for her. And her owner, a New York accountant, is leaving over $1 million in her will to this dog to make sure that she's taken care of in a way that she has grown accustomed to. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's a dog. I mean, at least it wasn't a cat, but it's a dog, <laughs> right? Like, who could do How would you possibly imagine this? And you're like, I can't understand it. I can't understand it. And then you hear a story like this one, Jessica Baldwin. She decided that she didn't want a typical bachelorette party, you know, filled with drinking and stumbling about and little plastic tiaras or whatever they do. She's a Pittsburgh bride-to-be, and she said she wanted a more memorable night. So she, just, she and her friends decided to give women from a local shelter a day of pampering, something they could never afford on their own. So they took all of these women out for a day. They got them haircuts and manicures. They gave them a shopping spree. They bought them lunch with their own money, and they provided, they, they organized and, and negotiated with a restaurant who would give them a fancy dinner at night. A day of pampering that these women were able to give to other women in need. Why would she do this? See, she understands what it means to invest in an eternal future. Rather than spend her money on herself and her friends, they decided to invest it to help others in need. Now, we have to remember the Bible isn't against earning money. It's not against being wealthy. This is not like an anti-money message or anything like that. Lots of great Christians in the New Testament had money, and earning is encouraged throughout the Bible in many places. The question is whether you're accumulating wealth so that you can live in a self-indulgent way. Living in a self-indulgent way. Because it is possible to be rich in this life and poor in the next. So that's your audit. I know it's not an easy message for us, but these ideas are found throughout the Bible. I mean, Jesus himself spoke more about money and helping people with our money than any other topic, more than he talked about prayer, more than he talked about heaven and hell, more than he talked about faith. He spoke about this, and he knows what he's talking about. I mean, he really does, because he's not asking us to do anything that he has not already done himself. And that's so important for us to remember. Take a look at, here's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You kind of get what he's saying here, right? Jesus had the riches of heaven at his disposal. 
all of the privilege and the status that comes with being the son of God, with being deity, he lacked nothing. The comfort, the ease of life. And yet, he gave it all up. He gave it all up and he became a pauper in this life, in this world, and he died the death of a criminal so that we could become rich. See, Jesus knows what he's talking about. He's already blazed this trail for us. He didn't cling to his wealth. He didn't cling to his status. He didn't cling to his position. He considered all of his comfort of life, all of his ease of life, not worth clinging to. In light of the mission that God the Father had laid out for him, and that mission was to come to us, the poor, to make us rich, rich beyond imagination, giving us access to the Father and back into the throne room of heaven to be inherited, to inherit all of the spectacular beauty and promises that the scriptures have laid out for us. You see, he knows what he's talking about when he tells us this is the way for us to live. So friends, we need to be careful with money because money can make us ignore God, become self-sufficient in a false way, and become callous to the needs of the people all around us. So I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to be singing a couple of songs, and we're going to be preparing our hearts to come to the Lord's table. And as we do that, I'd love for you to be reflecting on these questions and examining our own hearts. We're going to be doing our responsive reading and listening to some songs, talking about the splendor that's found in Christ. And we're going to be using this as a time to let God do some real work in our hearts. It's real easy for us to begin to kind of get distracted by the things in this world. And sometimes we just need a few moments of letting the heart settle in before God ask him to tear down the walls that have been built up over the course of our lives. And so we're asking you guys, you know, use this as a time to continue doing some real business with God.